You're listening to Brave New Words. Uh, my name is Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. I'm Del. And on today's show, we're going to mostly look at the world of book news, because we haven't done that in a while. No, um, we haven't, actually. <coughs> and if we're very, very, very lucky, we might get round to talking about Ben Aranovich's The Hanging Tree, which is the latest City of London Peter Grant book. If we don't get round to it, that's next episode. <laughs> so, uh Coming up next, a jingle. Across the world, 24 hours a day. <laughs> Wasn't that a nice jingle? That was a nice jingle. Best we've had. Yes. I think possibly... We've got to be careful because some of our previous shows have we've we've said that and we haven't actually had a jingle. No, no, we, we always have a jingle. There's <laughs> always a jingle, Russ. Always a jingle. It's sometimes it's sometimes surpri- it's not in my mind. Sometimes it's a surprise jingle. <laughs> sometimes it's a jingle that you have to imagine by closing your eyes and taking a lot of mescaline. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, so shall we get on to the book news before we get sued? Um, book news! Book news! Book news! Don't jingle. We are brave new words, and this is the only book news you will ever need! Um, so, firstly, Peter Jackson is to adapt to Mortal Engines. So, Mortal Engines, of course, being uh, about a far-future post-apocalyptic world where uh, people have put cities on wheels. <laughs> right. And okay. so, so all the cities are kind of these big, kind of roving vampire things that eat other cities. So London is like this huge kind of steampunk contraption monstery thing. Um, it's an extremely popular series. Uh, Peter Reeve um, written, has written a whole series of books. Apparently, production is scheduled to start in New Zealand in spring twenty seventeen. Um, it's apparently young adult, but it doesn't really sound that young adult. I'm still working on the premise. Did they did they sort of prize London up and put it on a yeah, truck? Pretty much. Right, okay. So so I thought it was pretty nailed down. I'm still thinking that I don't know if I'd have gone Peter Jackson. He's done he does big and weird quite well. He does yeah, you want do visual big and spectacle weird quite yeah. well. I think it depends on what it depends on what they wanted. And how much of a visual spectacle? Because I think if you're going visual for that sort of thing, I'd probably have gone Del Toro. Is the Weta Workshop building an actual city for this? The you, same way they built Hobbiton? You've got to, you've got to hope, really. Really, you've got to hope. There's that, that also thing where, and I'm not being mean about Peter Jackson, but Peter Jackson's kind of like, if you can't get Del Toro... <laughs> One, once. Once that happened. Well, well, and they had him, he just left. Yes. <laughs> But no, it's and and also if you can't get Peter Jackson, sometimes you get Del Toro. That's also mm-hmm. happened the other way around. It's like you know, and they're not interchangeable in any way, no, shape, or form. Not. I think they are just both very, very visual. So you're going to get a very interesting visual film, but with Del Toro, you're going to get like a more stylized visual film, which in my head sounds like something that 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 concept would play really well into 
Um, I think Hollywood for a very long time wanted someone who was like Terry Gillum but could run a budget. Yeah. And then they got two of them, which is <laughs> which is Del Toro and Jackson, because they're both, you know, mm. they, they they they've both been in charge of massive massive projects that have made loads amounts of money and look absolutely gorgeous. Mm. So and I kind of I personally I, I want Del Toro doing his own kind of cool kind of you know Spanish Gothic stuff, but yeah. that's because I'm selfish. <laughs> um, and because I absolutely, you know, Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favourite movies of all time. Pan's Labyrinth is amazing. So good. Like, uh, slight detour, but it took me a while to work out why I recognised the girl from the TV adaptation of Shannara Chronicles. And I was like, oh, wait, it's because it's the girl from Pan's Labyrinth that oh, she has is. an American accent. <laughs> oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I know, isn't it weird? Well, um, probably, probably, probably one of my favourite Spanish language films. That's an entirely different show. That's not even this <laughs> podcast. That's me talking about. That's me talking about all points spin. Um, so, uh, Anna Smale has won the World Fantasy Award. Uh, the, World well Fantasy, the, the World Fantasy Award, of course, being a World Fantasy Award, was yet again in North America. Um, <laughs> I think it's been not in North America once. So, you know, really, guys, just change the name. <laughs> <laughs> have, have, have non-North Americans won this? Yeah, before? that's true. No, they have. Um, so, by the just world, because it's hosted there, doesn't mean that you know they're the only people eligible. By the world, we mean, of course, Columbus, Ohio. Ohio. Uh, she won for the Chimes, which was up for okay. a book, which is the one about um, the the sound that removes your memory all the time, and you forget who you are, and you forget where you are, and actually remembering is a socially bad thing. So. People just get on, and then obviously the main character starts remembering. Dun, dun, dun. And that's. It's apparently haunting and magical, and I've not read it. It sounds like the setting of a very interesting Christmas Doctor Who episode. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah. I, 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 I've got to say, The Chimes has been on my Get Round to Reading shelf for a while, but I actually don't physically own it. Right? <laughs> That doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm not going to get around to reading it. It just means yeah. that there you are know, so many books that I have actually on my physical shelf. I have a pile and I have a Waterstones wish list. Yes. They're both essentially the same thing, just one of them physically is in my presence and one of them is is not. Yeah, your, your virtual bookshelf. Mm. It sounds very Amazon. Your <laughs> virtual bookshelf! No, I have actual bookshelves. We're sitting in the book and we're basically surrounded by books. Mm-hmm. If we make a misstep, they'll realise that they outnumber us by, by many to one and we'll intact, which is the constant peril that we have while we're recording these shows. But, uh, yeah, but we, we are many of them satisfied by reading them. That's true, because I like to be read. Yeah. It calms them down, I think. And, still... and then the ones that have been read sort of assure the younger members that they, their turn will come. <laughs> that, that's true. But you see, every time they get read, especially if it's me, they get slightly more, you know, Slightly, slightly more used. My copy of Good Omens, I think, is about to die again. Uh, I think I'm on my first. Anyway, we're going on a total tangent about the books, and they're staring at us. So let's uh, let's get yeah. on. Um, oh, so oh, uh, sad news. Uh, Sherry S. Tepper, um, staunch environmentalist and feminist writer, highly regarded, especially for her 1989 work Grass, uh, passed away uh, in October. 
late October. Oh. Uh, she was 87. Um, she will be greatly missed. And the, the world of genre writing is a little bit sadder for her passing. A little bit lesser. Uh, moving on, um, there is a UK 2024 bid for what uh, we were talking about World Fantasycon. Mm. Worldcon, the science fiction one, uh, do have events like in the world. So mm. Helsinki is next year, and there was an attempt to do one in 2024 in London, I Ooh. think. Well, in the United Kingdom, but let's be honest, it's going to be in London. Might be Manchester, you never know. <laughs> be nice. It's going to be London. Uh, <laughs> It's going to be the because last uh, 2014 it was the Excel Center and it worked really well and it was a really good kind of you know mm. really good setup and it was a big extravaganza sort of thing and it's the same people and okay. you know half of them live in London and the rest of them don't live in the UK so okay so I I would imagine it'll be London again but I think Manchester's such an interesting place for. For a sci-fi setting, because it's such, it's got such a, a a scientifically steeped history that it just lends to that, doesn't it? Like, don't get me wrong, I know I know London has also been important for science, but I just obviously I'm very biased towards Manchester. <laughs> they did an Eastercon, which is the UK version of Worldcon, mm. um, in Manchester this year. Um, one of the problems they had is they sort of rushed it because they were expecting to do it next year. Uh, um, and one of the bids dropped out, so they ended up doing it. They only had a like nine months' notice or wow. something. So it was at the Hilton, which is expensive and not an ideal place to do an event. The Hilton on Deansgate? Yeah. Oh, blimey, yeah, no. That's absolutely not where... It's not where you would put it's it. It's not ideal. All the people from Manchester were like, this is not where we would, we'd put this event. No. Um, but it was. it had been rushed, essentially. It had been rushed yeah. It's a shame timing-wise as well, because they've just reopened the palace, and it's all, like... It's still got the look of of the time, but it's all tiles and stuff, and so that would have been, like, automatically given it, a, like, a really steampunky vibe. Obviously, they've only just opened. But that would have been great. But there's one every year when it comes to EasterCon, so, you know, the, there's always a potential of a bid. I mean, it's next year it's Birmingham at Novotel, which is, again, a rush bid. Mm. But you can't really go wrong with, with Novotel, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Especially you know, that, that site. I've been to several conventions there and they always work out fine. Because it's, it's a warren, basically. I expect to find a minus or halfway, halfway through any of these things. Yeah. Have they just just hopped the schedule so that you know every venue's going for it one year early? Manchester um, was supposed to get it next year and now Birmingham's getting it rushed. Yeah. Short version because okay. because they had problems with Cardiff because everyone wanted one in Wales and okay. they had problems with one in Cardiff. Uh, the one after that is in Harrogate. It's Follycon, okay. so 2018 will be called Follycon and that's planned. And uh, Kieran Gillen is one of the guests. Har- that Harrogate would be yeah. Harrogate's a lovely place for. So Kieran Gillen or Karen Gillen. Kieran Gillen, okay, the comic book writer and creator of Rick and the Divine. Not I, Karen Karen still. Yeah. I thought you said Karen Gillen. I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh. <laughs> right. So what we're what we're saying is is that we need to organise our own Eastercon in Manchester. This is not a bid. Uh, <laughs> and get both of these people. Get both of these people just to confuse the heck out of everyone and to also on the same out. panel. On no, the, no, on, on alternate panels, and alternate panels, panels at the same time. But but as guests, <laughs> yes. Well, it would cause. The thing is, it would cause conniptions because uh, because uh, Karen Gillan, I don't believe, has written a book. 
She's <laughs> no, no, she's writing plays and things. Well, oh, I that's fine. Book. She's writing. If she's, if she she's recently announced, I think, a play or something she's working on. But, but because EasterCon is not, it's not a sort of convention where you get signatures. It's like, it totally is. It's just, you get signatures from, like, you know, writers. Um, it's, you just don't get signings from, you know, from, from, from famous people who sit there looking slightly bored and expecting you to queue up and sign. That's not how that works. But, um, anyway, that would be awesome. Um, Talking about those things, we've gone on a tangent. You know how we were laughing because we do. You, yeah, you know how we were laughing at FantasyCon next year and how it's going to be a day of entry. Uh, the, okay, go on. Uh, uh, FantasyCon was supposed to be at Daventry, right? Oh yes, yes. Uh, uh, and um, it's supposed to be because we, we did a whole, we almost did a whole show about day of entry. Um, unfortunately, because everyone's complained, it's no longer going to be at Daventry. Oh. No one knows where it's going to be. What were the complaints? That it was in Daventry. Oh, just literally we <laughs> didn't want much. it to be there. Yeah, they, they didn't like the look of the venue or any oh. of the rest of it. Um, and it was... It's Alan Stroud, who is a senior member of the British Fantasy Society. Mm. He, he's I can't remember his title off the top of his head. Sorry, Alan. But uh, he does a lot of good work for them. Mm. If you say, I mean, he's got a little events company... Because uh, he used to be a LARPer, so he he's done the kind of the he's running a LARP event is really hard, and as an events management apprenticeship thing, it's a really good events management apprenticeship thing. Mm-hmm. I, I talk to when I'm doing events management stuff, we talk to a lot of people who come through um, either a kind of big convention things like big nerd parties or LARP, and okay. though LARP is small scale because there's lots of logistics involved. Because you're 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 writing a book, running a running a fringe theatre production, and having an enormous party in a field mm-hmm. on a very tight budget. So people who who do a lot of that tend to be quite good at running events. Mm-hmm. So he's got a company called um, HWS Events because it used to be called Hicks with Sticks Events. Because um, <laughs> he his events used to be about Hicks with Sticks. Excellent. Initial hide so many things. They do. But um yeah, HWS. Um and HWS have basically said we're not doing it at Daventry and no one's come forward as the time of this recording to say where Fantasy Con's gonna be next. Okay. And I'm not volunteering Manchester and I'm not volunteering to do that work because I'm too busy. <laughs> it's it's one of those things I think when it comes to, to organising literature events in the United Kingdom, definitely, is that there is a small elite of people who have the time resources and competence to be doing it all the time mm. and everyone else goes that's brilliant that you can do that and you know that kind of cartoon thing where there's like a long line of people yeah, and everyone takes a step back except for Droopy Dog <laughs> it's like sometimes it feels like that's like if you don't pay attention quickly enough and step backwards you will be in charge of running a major event yeah. Which is not how it works, and I'm being horrendously mean to the no, hard-working yeah. people. We need two volunteers. What do you need to volunteer for? That's one. He was It does feel like that sometimes. But I think there's so many places, though, that are such a, a wonderful setting for a fantasy event because they already have a certain like magical quality to them. Like, like Bath is feels quite magic when you're there Lancaster feels quite magic when you're there there's just all so many places Chester here on why yes 
I think they might already have that sword. Is it? <laughs> Edinburgh would be a good place to do it. Edinburgh, oh my goodness, yeah. But also very expensive. But you should mm, can be. Edinburgh or Glasgow would be perfect for a world fantasy or world science fiction world con. Mm. Um, and again, I'm not volunteering to do uh, one of those bids. But yeah, no, that'd be amazing. Mm. Um, but that's that's we were talking about an English bid, not a Scottish bid. We've still got loads of loads of big news. Great, uh, hooray! So. Um, Harlan Ellison has started the Books Preservation Project. So we, we know Harlan Ellison, yeah? We do. He who has written episodes of Babylon 5 and Star Trek and... Consulting um, on B5. B5 and... Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the TikTok Man. And a whole bunch yes, of other stuff. Um, he said going... Because we, we could be doing this actually on Harlan Ellison. Let's not. Um, now, I'm sort of a fan of Harlan Ellison. He's also one of those people that... He's very shouty about certain things. One of the things he's very shouty about is the exploitation of writers, mm-hmm. which is which, which is amazing. Which is fair. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, but he's hilariously sweary about it. Yes, adore him for it. Um, but he is mostly a handwritten typewriting author, doesn't trust computers style guy, and he's been doing this his entire life. And apparently, his his study is just filled with his writing. Right. And some of it is some of it has been printed, mm-hmm. lots of it has been printed, lots of it is just sitting in notepads. So there was a Kickstarter to um, to get all of this onto a digital electronic format, and it's clearly clearly the the rewards are access to the Harlan Ellison archive, and also various print, printed versions of books that you wouldn't have been able to get because they're long out of print. That yeah. sounds amazing. So if you are a sci-fi fan and you've got ten dollars, then go on to Kickstarter, type in Harlan Ellison, and for in ten dollars, it's a big, steep goal they're going for. It's like you know tens of thousands of dollars, but it's Harlan Ellison. I think some people would would volunteer as well. I know, granted, he wouldn't be happy about that, but yeah, because you've been writing for sixty years, haven't you? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's I think he wants the archivists to be paid. Yeah. Well, so because you know that's very much his. Principles. That's yeah. That's that's the thing. That's what he. That, that's what he stands for. Um, so yeah. So it's uh, I looked at it and it's like he's after a lot of money, but it's Alan Allison. He's probably going to get a lot of money. Out. Mm. But um, but yes, and obviously Star Wars magazine has uh, done a thing as well. We've uh, featured it in our news section and this sort of thing. So. Fingers crossed, eh? Yeah. Community behind and all of that. So, um, talking about the... So they're worrying about uh, being a Kickstarter, because if they don't get the backing level for it, what do they do with this stuff? They find another way, would okay. be my guess. Mm. They'll find a way, but it's like, you know, this one will fix it now. Yeah. That that one will fix it in 10, 15 years. Mm. Which tends to be the way with these things. Um, yeah. You, we do cover news stories on the show where... Um, you know, an author's archive has been found and then 10, 15 years later... I mean, actually, getting on to that point, Christopher Tolkien, talking about someone who's worked through someone else's work their entire life... Yeah. yeah. Christopher Tolkien has got the uh, Bodley Medal, or Bodley Medal. Is it Bodley? Bodley in Library? Bodley? Yeah, I often wonder that, because I said it's like Bodleian. Is it the Bodleian? Anyway, Bodleian. It's Bodleian now. As yeah. a named after Bod from that kids' t- the TV show. <laughs> Sorry. 
if um, we're mispronouncing it, write in and tell us how we're supposed to be pronounced it. We're supposed to pronounce it like that, apparently. That's the theme tune for Bod. Because I know people who work at the Bodleian, and now I'm picturing them as characters from Bod. Amazing. And that would be amazing. What book would you like now, Ronaldo? I think I'll have a strawberry-covered novel. <laughs> that sort of thing. If you've not seen the kids' TV show Bod, well done, you have a life. Um, and you're also under a certain age. Uh, it's Bod. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. There's also a Bod Dread mashup, which is just <laughs> Dread as Bod. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, not at all. No. Anyway, uh, on to Christopher Tolkien. Uh, J.L. Tolkien's son, Christopher, uh, has been honoured uh, with uh, a Bodley medal, uh, which is not a little picture of Bod. Uh, it's awarded at the University of Oxford's Bodleian Library to individuals who have made an outstanding contribution um, to the world of literature, culture, science fiction and communication. What Christopher has basically been spending his entire life doing is archiving his father's work, because J.L. Tolkien, father of fantasy, was also a literary genius and a linguistics genius. And the vast bulk of his stuff is not the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. It's it's stuff about language and communication and where it comes from, the origins of myth and storytelling and this sort of thing. It's really important work. And if you're a, a certain sort of academic, you get terribly excited by it. And what Christopher Tolkien has spent a lot of time doing is pulling that all together. So yeah, Dan Wright has gotten a recognition from, from the Bordelian. That's exactly the... The, the the world that he's in. Mm. He's also yeah, yeah. He's also not young. It's a short no. young. One of the like Roy is like not a young man. See, I'm almost I'm almost surprised at how because Roy's in his forties. Yeah, um, but he doesn't look it. No, there's definitely a touch of the elf about him. Like if you think he doesn't, he's he's not crazy young in Lord of the Rings, and that was that was ages ago now. But um. Yeah, Roy's a really nice chap as well. Friend of the show, yeah, uh, and all of that. Um, Roy Tolkien, by the way, who is one of the ancestors of the Tolkien line. In case you're wondering who we're talking about, but um, yeah, that, that family is big and complicated. And let's not go there, shall we? <laughs> um, so uh, you see, the first time I met Roy, I think was at Sci-Fi Weekend, all the way in Wales. And there's there's a, there's a book element to Sci-Fi Weekend. So, uh, 2017 Sci-Fi Weekend, it's mostly, because we're thinking about maybe doing something there if we can, um, Telos Publishing are launching some books there. Okay. So, um, Small Press, they'll, they'll, they'll stare at me and go, Small Press, it's Small Press, Medium Press, whatever. Um, press, uh, Telos Publishing uh, will launch three books. One is, an, well, one's called The Weekend of Reading, which is an anthology of short, short fictions from um, Telos people who are happened to be there at the time and will be at that event um, there will also be uh, Small Ghosts which is a novella of Quiet Terror by Paul Lewis and uh, Frieder Warrington's short story collection Knights of Blood Wine which sound, sounds like it's about Klingons but probably, it probably isn't <laughs> probably isn't <laughs> could be about Klingons we don't, don't rule anything out <laughs> you know I, I'd read a short story collection about Klingons on the pop uh, as they see in my part of the world. Um, let's see, what other news pieces are we running out of news? We might be. Drop oh. Klingons. Yeah, Kling- well, yeah, Klingons are pretty much. You know, hold this, I'm k- stand back. <laughs> uh, the European Uto- uh, Utopiales Awards have been announced. Uh, that was announced uh, just in on Halloween. Um, 
It's one of those awards that gives you a cash prize, which is lovely. I think it's about £2,000, about £2,000. Almost the same thing these days. So, um, ah. Topical. Topical. Uh, the, Uto- uh, the Utopia Alley's award went to Le Vivant by Anna Stauber-Bennett. Uh, it's a translation from Russian um, by Raphael Pash. Um, the Youth Award went to uh, the Digital Empire. He said mistranslating that. And the uh, Pre-Julia Rolando Award went to um, Le Club de Punk Contraire à l'Apocalypse Zombie. Amazing. <laughs> By Camille Bruyere, um, which is a great name. Give, give it all the awards. Give it all the awards, yeah. especially for best title and making me pronounce French, which I've not <laughs> done for some time. Zombie Apocalypse in French. That's, that's just its own image. Love it. And finally, the Harry Potter book that you will never own is up for auction again. So, unique tales of Beetle the Board. Beetle the Bard? Beetle the Bard. <laughs> Handwritten. Beetle the Board was a different guy. <laughs> he wasn't that as interested in his stories. <laughs> oh dear. Shall I start again? I'm not going to re-record this. I'm just going to start again. So, unique tales of Beetle the Bard is up for au- auction. Auction. Um, <laughs> Keep going, Ed. <laughs> Dear listener, they're being terribly mean and they're, they're giggling at the way that I speak. It's outrageous. It's a good job that I present a book show and I can pronounce the word book, really. <laughs> uh, you started with zombie apocalypse in French. You know you can't talk right. <laughs> it's like an incantation, but no, I can't speak right. <laughs> Are you saying that French is a visual gate effect? For, for 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 language, I think you might be right. Actually, anyway, <laughs> if you're French, don't write in. <laughs> no, no. If you're French, do write in in French. Um, a handwritten copy. Yeah, of... we'll hand your correspondence. Uh, yeah, I use Google Translate. <laughs> so, getting onto the story because <laughs> it's kind of exciting. There's a handwritten copy of J.K. Rowling's short story, short story collection, Tales of Beetle the Bard. Uh, which Rowling has created herself. So it's all hand-drawn and hand-written. It's the the beautifully bound. Um, Starting bid is going to be £500,000. The last one made almost £2 million. It's going to go up for auction. All funds funds go to uh, the charity Lumos. Um, Which is not a charity to destroy Voldemort. It's just a charity. Um, I think if Lumos was, just, was a spell for light, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a child's poverty charity. Is it one yeah. she's, she's done? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. Shall we? But well, we could, we, we if you want though, as much as it might be the book we could never own, we could timeshare it. That'll work well. Yeah. But it could just live at my house, and you guys could just come and visit it whenever you want to. That sounds like an excellent when idea. When I'm in, let's let's let's, <laughs> let's crowdfund the two million pounds required. Yeah, and then everyone can timeshare it. Yeah, I'll just keep hold of it, and I'll have like a diary, and it'd be like, right, you get this hour on this date. You well, can you know, come then. We have the figures of the the, the you know, listeners. If we timed, it, if if the entire audience timeshared it, yay, we can raise twenty seven p. I love you, listeners, but yeah, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> you can all come. Yes, it, it's that thing of let, let, let's let's all come around to let's all come around to the book nook. The thing is, it would get eaten by the book nook. It would. Well, that's why it could live at my house. We've already said my house. True. Yeah, you have to listen with your ears. 
Stop listening with other body parts. Is it, how does that work with Al's space? Because that's naughty. Well, Al's space, then technically it would, could still live at all our houses. That's true. Anyway, um, congratulations to whichever incredibly rich person decides to own it, and uh, double congratulations if you happen to be some sort of massive private public library thing. Yeah. That'd be amazing. I imagine that at some point one of them will go to some sort of national archive or international archive thing, because it's drowning and she's like that. Yeah. Uh, fingers crossed. But at the end of the day, Tales of Middle Bard you can get is you know they are mm. just not one that's been hand drawn by the author herself yeah which to be honest is a little bit strange but it's all it's all just for a good cause isn't it it's a very quick way to raise not so not necessarily very quick i'm sure she's put a lot of time and effort in um but you're going to raise a lot of money doing that um i think it's it's, it's clever there's i mean we've, we've talk, talked about this with the um the american literary society and this sort of thing where you mm. get groups that actually will preserve books in a very specific and very sort of strange sort of way um, but yeah I always find unique like unique editions fascinating yeah because um, we, I mean, we'll talk about the Folio Society a bit more in, in, in a future show but I always find it fascinating when you get these kind of bespoke I know a couple of bookbinders and one of the things I'd absolutely love to do is I'd love to get a bookbinder uh, with a chap that I know called Jez Hunt, mm. who does um, leather work for for movies and for for, for theatre and this sort of thing, and he just does these devastatingly beautiful things. And I want to, I want to get a, a lady that I know who does this fantastic bookbinding and Jez together just to create some amazing spell books Aww. because they both do amazing works in leather. I've seen some fantastic. We talked about this a little while ago. Someone did a whole bunch of the Harry Potter books. With bespoke leather bound bindings, yes, yeah, and the cover plate literally had like a talisman yeah. inside that was relevant to each book. Okay, so you could pull out, you could you know, you could pull out a definitely hallow, hallow for right. example, uh, from the front cover. But you, obviously, you wouldn't. But it was it was in there. It was mm. kind of magnetized in there that you could pull it out and use it. Books as things rather than books as books. Yeah, it sort of occurred to me as a thing here because you may we've mentioned this Harlan Ellison thing. If because um, if the archive, if they just took the literal pages that presumably he's produced over the course of his career and bound those into a work, that'd be one of these unique library pieces as well, mm. or actionable well, charity pieces. They also make you know chase items in and kind of like um, Maltese Falcon style things. In you know you get magical grimoires, don't you? In books where people chase after magical grimoires, so. Let's do an advert. Across the world, 24 hours a day. This is Macmillan International. That was a trailer, not an advert. A trailer? It's a lovely trailer. So, you know we're talking about books where people are trying to get their hands on books because of books. The Hanging Tree uh, is the latest book in the Peter Grant series. And it has a MacGuffin, and the MacGuffin is a ledger. And the ledger is essentially Isaac Newton's third collection of spells. (laughs) Um, So, we should explain the, the, the world of The Hanging Tree. 
We should. Uh, the world of Peter Grant. So, uh, Peter Grant is a metropolitan police officer. Um, his mother was a massive jazz fan. His father is a jazz player. Um, he is a uh, black police officer who is very talented, very good at his job, and then stumbles, stumbles into the world of magic and happens to be very good at it. Um, and it turns out the Metropolitan Police has a magic division. <laughs> um, and it's one guy. <laughs> Is it this guy? Uh, no, 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 it's not, no. No, no, it's just... <laughs> and, and there's one other guy. Right. Yeah, there's one other guy. And... So essentially, the, the the problem is that there's just one chap. There used to be loads of them, right? And then World War Two happened. Oh right, okay. It wasn't uh, you just a budget cut? No, and they all <laughs> they all walked into a horrific trap. Okay. So the, there's you know there's one left, and then suddenly there's two left because PC Forget Grant comes along and becomes the apprentice. So there's two. There's a master mm. and apprentice. Um. <laughs> so. What number is the hanging tree? The hanging tree, I believe, is book number six. Cool. Uh, it was in London, Moon of a Soho, Whispers Underground, Broken Homes, Foxglove Summer. So this would be this one. Foxglove Summer. That's and number six. I really liked Foxglove Summer because that was the one that was not set in London. Uh, I've only read um, Rivers of London. And it's one of those things where it's it's not because I don't want to carry on. I really enjoyed it and I will read the rest of them. It's just, as we've already said, there's already a pile that exists. Um, but I did... I, it really resonated. And I read it at a time when I felt like a lot of the things I was reading were kind of, there is a world that is part of our world. Like, you know when you've got fantasy, that, but it's set in like real world fantasy uh, I was reading a lot of that sort of idea at the time and it just stood out and it, it wasn't like the others it is fundamentally urban fantasy where you know it's the real world um, so there's Nightingale who is a senior member of the Metropolitan Police he's also very rich he's also very posh mm-hmm. um, and he is the head of the folly okay um, and the folly um, is what's left of a great British tradition of magical users, magic user types. So, back back in the day, Isaac Newton wrote two books, Principia Mathematica and Principia Magica, because to him it was all the same. Yeah. Um, and essentially, if you were rich, white and posh, and went to the right school and knew the right sort of people, you could be introduced to magic. And this all went along with certain reasonable lines and quite, you know, kind of self-policed themselves, made sure that only the right sort of people were involved, mm. which is a problem, but there we go. Mm-hmm. Um, up until World War II, where a lot of them just died. Also, the problem is that if you use magic too much, it pickles your brain. Drives you crazy. Which is a wonderful, useful plot. Yeah. It's like, I've discovered magic. I've gone insane. I'm going to do something stupid and evil now. Ah, it's because magic can drive you mental. Ah, problem. Not a good way to keep it hid either. Not a good way to keep it hid. It's it stayed relatively hidden mostly because I mean it does a lot of things that a lot of fantasy novels, a lot of this sort of genre does. Mm. So, for example, if you have a mobile phone and you use magic, you don't have a mobile phone anymore. Right. Because they're not compatible because the energies that are used in magic fries it. The same thing with the Harry Dresden books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um if you have a car with a fancy ignition, 
you don't have a fancy ignition anymore if you use too much magic, uh, and so on. Uh, I'm kind of because the invention of the mobile phone came a little bit after the Harry Potter series chronologically finished because it finished in '97. Um, so I'm kind of curious as to whether this, they, they've reintroduced this element with things like you know the, the cursed child play. I think it's. I don't a, know. I don't know. Don't do, talk about it. <laughs> okay. Well, so I haven't. I haven't read the script book. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But I, I'm. I'm not revealing. But it's, okay. It's a useful trope mm. to say that the two aren't compatible because then it also allows you to get rid of mobile phones, which are difficult to plot anyway. Uh, that he, what he has is he has a hard switch on his phone. Okay. So you just like an actual button that just turns the thing off. Doesn't doesn't. Doesn't cause it cause it to boot down. Mm. You just press a button and your phone is off. Yeah, which is terrible for the phone. <laughs> yes, but given the fact that it's about to get blown up due to magic, better for the phone. Better for the phone. Uh, and similar, yeah, it, it's one of those things where Nightingale's like wears this incredibly expensive watch. Uh, it's not in this one; it's in an earlier book. And he gets as a gift an incredibly expensive watch, and he's like. Thank you for the incredibly expensive watch. And he's like, yeah, it's a watch that won't get fried by magic. Don't get too impressed. Because <laughs> obviously the, the proper old-fashioned, well-made well-made watches don't use any electronic governs. Mm. So you're, you're fine. Whereas what is more, the threshold? I'm presuming clockwork watches work fine. Yeah. Yes, but most clockwork watches aren't, have batteries. No. Okay, yeah. This the, the thing. More, you more still need some kind of power source to get going. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Really, re- find them, you? really good windy watches yeah. are really pricey. Okay, so so you can identify them by the fact you can identify a wizard. No, no, I, I'm, I'm just thinking where the threshold is technologically. I mean, you can, can you are you allowed a radio? You know, where, where, where are you allowed a telegram? They <laughs> don't know is the answer. Right, and because PC Grant is a detective. Okay, he does the thing where he sits there. He sat there and worked out. He can summon a wearlight. Mm. And you can work out how you can summon the wearlight, how long you can summon the wearlight for, how long he can maintain it, and how how much um, candle wattage power, how much candle power it's generating. Yeah, he's measured it, so he can measure it and he can maintain it for a certain length of time. And then he's used that as his base unit of magic. And then he's got a collection of mobile phones. It's, it's fried to see where the limit is and what happens when you do that. Good stuff. So because again they're the heirs of Isaac Newton, so it's yes they've got magic. Uh, and yes, these characters can do the thing where they're throwing, uh, you know, they throw magic like hand grenades at each other in this mm. kind of proper magical duel. Uh, without going into it, there is. Well, yeah, you need to know what, sort of what level of intensity a spell was cast at, otherwise, you can't tell how long this person's been dead in this case and prove such and such a person did it. it in fact, they, in fact, to do slice up an autopsy brains because magic pickles your brain so they can see. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, and the folly has because the folly's got two wizards because it takes ages to train a wizard. Yeah. But it's got other people involved as well. So it's got uh, medical examiners and so on. Uh, it's got an archivist because obviously you'd have an archivist mm. because magic rigs uh, and so on and the folly collection. So there's a whole there's a whole staff. Yeah. And over like almost like guards guards. There's that big thing where you're like, oh, they've got a new member, hey, sort of thing. <laughs> um, you can and, make the two. <laughs> they've got some Molly makes the tea um, uh, no she's got her own plot but there's a whole whole host of characters in there yeah. who aren't who aren't wizards because mm. uh, there's two that's kind of a, it works with two the, the, there's other people who have magic and that's part of the problem one of the things we get in this book is we meet Reynard who is a fox because he's touched by the fae uh, there's a, a whole demimonde there's a whole bunch of people who live 
um, not literally underground, but in some cases they do, yeah. um, who have their own kind of lives that are kind of the half world that lives yeah. kind of under the shadows. And Peter Grant basically turns up to the, the, the bar that's full of these dodgy types and goes, Oh, you're nicked in that proper Sweeney style. <laughs> Because uh, that's his job, but they know who he is, and they know basically when Peter turns up, they're cautious. When Nightingale turns up, they flee because Nightingale's a proper wizard. Yeah. Um, and, and and so, what's the plot of this one? There's a chase item book. Um, Timon. Oh, we should get onto the rivers because they're kind of the title of the series, the rivers of London. So, um, as this book begins, um, he's still dating Beverly Brook. Okay. Uh, Beverly Brook. Is, um, is 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 an attractive young lady, who also happens to be the goddess of Beverly Brook. Obviously, um, the rivers are people. Okay, um, the, there was an old Father Thames. Right. There's there's a Tyburn. There's various, and they're all hmm. of a certain age and of a certain type. If you see what I mean, and the the kind of personalities themselves kind of fit the river. So they're rivers. There's a wonderful moment in this one, he said, trying to avoid spoilers, mm. where Bev's talking about her time as a student. Uh, and she's like, so, like, did you tell them? And she's like, of course I told them that I was a river goddess. No one believed me. I was a student. It's the sort of thing you say. And, and you can totally see that. You, could, yeah. you know, pretty, wealthy. Well, you're a river goddess. Well, that's nice. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've all been at that party. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, so yes. So in this one, Lady Tyburn, who obviously, hence the name Hanging Tree. Um. Do we have to explain Tyburn? Shall we explain Tyburn? Right. So London. Uh. If you were unlucky enough to get caught by the the horrible capitalists that ran ancient London. Uh, and you stole, say, a loaf of bread, you were going to get hanged because it was the best way to keep the rule of law going. Mm. He said horrendously cynically. So they would take you just outside of London, uh, as was at the time, to Tyburn. And they would take you along a bunch of pubs and bars along the way. So you were nicely hypnotised by the time they took you to Tyburn, where they would hang you. Um, there is there is the tributary, which is Tyburn, um, there as well. So there is a spiritual force of Tyburn. There's a pub by Tyburn, and there's a whole vibe of death in there. Um, this book, The Hanging Tree, has that as a strong theme. The story starts where Lady Ty's, who was a river goddess, Lady Ty's daughter is implicated. Um, in the death of another young socialite. And Peter Grant is basically told, sort this out. Get to the bottom of it and sort it out. And sort it out in a way that's convenient for me, says Lady Ty. Of course, it doesn't work that way. Hmm. Um, highlights include stuff that we haven't seen before, uh, more magic, more examination of the magic world, and some really, really good kind of fight scenes. I Yay. really like the mag- some of the magical dueling in this. Um, I kind of want to say where, but I would spoil it, so I'm not going to. Okay. But some of the magical jewels are just like, oh, it's spot on, Ben, thank you. Um, so, is it a, is it good? Yeah, of course it is. It's Ben Aronovich. Um Should you read it? Yeah, you should read the other, fir- the, the other five first. 
Um, I believe Russ did a review when we were back when we were in the book group. Um, mm. We kind of dove into all of them for, for a bit. Um, that was a while ago now. That, that was really uh, early on. It was really early on. Um, we should do it again. Maybe maybe we'll go into the whole series and have a bit of a bimble about them. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if we can catch Mr. Romanovich, if he's nice enough to talk to us for a bit, that would be lovely. Um, but yes great series you should be reading it um it will if you are a casual reader it will not take you very long because he writes a good clip clip and a good piece mm. and they're quite fun um yes. uh, shall we go and talk to a lovely author yeah let's talk to a lovely author sounds good thank you alex white welcome to brave new words thank you thank you for having me so uh, tell us about every mountain made low well, Every Mountain Made Low is the story of an autistic woman living in a dystopian version of Birmingham, Alabama. So it's like a strip-mined-out crater city, it's, uh, or it's a city that's built into the side of a crater called The Hole. And um, she's a medium. All the women in her family are mediums, and so she can see ghosts. And um, her best friend is murdered. And she decides that she wants to get revenge. But the problem is, the she's not exactly a, a, like a combat person. She's not, you know, she's she's afraid of guns and has trouble talking to people. And, you know, uh, not, really, uh, not really your typical heroine. But, um, uh, yeah, it's the story of her trying to get revenge. Why did you, why did you decide to go with psychics? Uh, well, because I, I I love ghosts. I'm I'm from the deep south, and there's we have definitely a strong ghost tradition here. Um, I think it's great that it's coming out around Halloween. So, uh, but the ghosts the ghosts in this story are while she can see them and she can learn things from them, they're not like friendly ghosts. They she doesn't talk to them. They're uh, they're quite violent. What defines an American ghost story? Oh my gosh. I don't know that I can answer that question. That's, that's a heck of a question. Um, I think that uh, I think that American ghost stories are, I mean, they're always based around loss. They're always based around, uh, you know, some kind of betrayal. And, you know, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know that that's uniquely American, though. Why horror? Why horror? Well, I think that it's a natural function of adversity to be confronted with really... I mean, you know, I I, I accented the ghosts because I, I felt like they were they would be a tough thing for a heroine like mine to process, that, that, that they would be something that would be incredibly difficult for her to overcome and uh, so for me the horror was a function of the narrative not the other way around well, why why writing? writing is one of the hardest things you can do what on <laughs> earth makes you want to be a writer? well uh, I'm, I'm kind of a natural showman uh, you know I get nervous at parties and in person I don't do very well but uh I love getting on stage, and I love telling stories, and I love uh, all of that kind of stuff. I I, I started out as a, a real cinephile, you know. I love movies, 
huge film buff and and um you know eventually my friends got tired of hearing me complain about movies and pick them apart and they started saying well if you're so great why don't you write your own so that's how i got started writing i started writing movies and uh eventually switched over to novel writing um after kind of seeing some of my friends go through the hollywood ringer and uh really liked it thought it was awesome um i've been doing it ever since how many um how many books and how many submissions did you go through before um, your debut novel, Every Mountain Made Low? Uh, that would be five. This is my, yes, my debut is my fifth novel, which is great because whenever you tell somebody, you know, oh, yes, my debut novel's coming out, they, they just kind of automatically assume it's your first. But uh, I'd been working at it for, I don't know, eight years probably before I sold a single book. And um, it, it went really well. I mean, like uh, you know, I couldn't I couldn't ask for a better publisher than Solaris, and and the, the distribution is far and wide, and that's excellent. And my agent did a fantastic job, and it took me eight years to get him. <laughs> but um, hundreds of submissions. Well, not hundreds. Probably under a hundred submissions because I gave up really easily and decided I wasn't ready. Usually, pretty fast. <laughs> So what's next? What's next? I have a space opera that blends um, magic and action and Formula One that uh, I've written, and I, I'm, I'm, it's called Gods of the Harrow, and I am dying to see it sold. I'm a huge Formula One fan, so uh, intensely jealous that you live near Silverstone. Um, actually, why, why, what is it about Formula One? Because your first debut novel is is horror, and horror, is horror <laughs> all horror is about death, and you know Formula One is incredibly dangerous as well. So, what's the appeal? Okay, so so first of all, I, you know, I gotta I gotta say that part of part of horror for me uh, is the scary thing about horror is not dying actually for me uh like that's what makes ghosts so terrifying to me um i don't believe in them at all but uh when i watch ghost movies i I flip out pretty easily because the idea that you could not die when you have physically died is awful (laughs) so um right so formula one what is it about formula one well it's okay first of all it's the nerdiest sport on earth uh, they give the engineers trophies, you know, so that that right there is pretty nerdy. It's all about, you know, aerodynamics and science, and, and the people who drive the cars are athletes on the skill level of astronauts, you know, and, and um, it's all so fragile and so delicate and can come unraveled at the drop of a hat. And the logistics of it, I mean, Mercedes-AMG, that's like 1,500 people. That's like a it's like a large defense contractor worth of aerospace talent, uh, all to make one car go around a track 75 times. You know, and, and um, as far as the danger of it is concerned, I, I am, uh, I, I actually don't like the danger. I, nobody's died since Jules Bianchi died last year, uh, which is great. Before Jules, um, they lost a test driver once or twice. But then before that is Ayrton Senna in 1994. So 
relative to, you know, rugby, Formula One is safe. I mean, it's pretty easy. <laughs> Staying on the same sort of topic, what sort of things inspire you? Oh, well, things that people are passionate about. I, I love, I, I've always dreamt of, like, writing, for instance, uh, a food fiction, like a food novel, uh, because... Um, uh, I love going to to world class restaurants when I'm on travel and and seeing just the incredible precision and skill. I love watching artisans work, and I think that's a big part of the attraction to Formula One as well. Is that everybody there is at the top of their game and cares so deeply about it. Um, you know, depending on depending on the novel, though the 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 story comes from. A, a different place, you know. So, for example, every mountain made low came in a lot of ways because of the 2012 election, the American presidential election, and, and how uh, venomous the politics had gotten on the conservative side. And of course, they've only gotten worse this year. So, it remains relevant. <laughs> um, one moment. So. What um, what new authors and what writers are currently inspiring you, and who are you reading, and who are you recommending to your friends? Oh well, uh, I just read an Irish author named Belinda McKeon. Uh Her book Tender is uh, is a fantastic kind of psychological trip. Um, let's see, in the, the past couple of years. Uh, I've been picking up Lee Bardugo's books. Uh, I picked up uh, City of Thieves uh, by uh, oh, David Benioff, who, who now writes for Game of Thrones, but at the time was famous for Wolverine Origins, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but that's a that's that's a somewhat true story about two Russians trapped in in the the siege of Stalingrad who went out for eggs. <laughs> And it and it, it goes from there, and it's it's a, it's absolutely fantastic uh, to read. Or at least it was. I was reading. I liked it. Uh, I've been uh, reading Fingersmith, um, Sarah Waters. I want to say. So. I wouldn't say she's a new author. But <laughs> <laughs> I read Girl on the Train, like everyone in the planet. <laughs> But did you read it on the train? Because, you know, that's why you're supposed to read it. <laughs> I, I didn't read it on the train. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have any trains where I am, really. It's incredibly frustrating. I love riding trains, so... I like the order of it and the ability to get up and move around. I get stuck on planes every week. See, I live in Manchester, and I can't imagine a world without trains, but... Um... Well, and I need to come live in Manchester. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> um, so, as you move into the world of um, genre fiction, um, do you think that genre fiction is as diverse and as welcoming as it thinks it is? Oh, um, well, that, I guess that all depends on who you're talking to, what, what, what communities you're talking to. I've witnessed a lot of I've witnessed a lot of older science fiction authors kind of sticking their feet in their mouths. When I go to big conventions, it tends to feel very diverse and welcoming. 
And when I go to small local conventions, it, it feels like a good old boys club. Um, I've had the displeasure of meeting uh, some people that I used to admire and finding out that they, they were very exclusive and, and you know, frankly, somewhat bigoted. So, no, I, I think it's changing. Uh, I think when we, as we get, you know, a, a much more inclusive authorship base, people like Nora Jemison or Daniel Jose Older, I, I think that we'll see uh, a, a much more accepting, much more interesting set of sci-fi and, and fantasy authors. And some uh, very uh, odd questions to, to kind of head towards the end here. Oh, no, that's fine. So, if you got to pick one work of art, and it can be a book, it can be a play, it can be a movie, it can be anything, but you can only have one of them, um, and it will outlast the sun, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Um, how do I even say to that? I feel like it's got to be something that's representative of humanity. It's going to outlast the sun. Um... I don't. Uh, you know, you know that people really worked hard to make those golden records on the Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess I would probably pick uh, "Glow" by Khaki King. Um, it's uh, an acoustic guitar album. Khaki King is a percussion guitarist and folk guitarist from New York. And I've listened to that album probably a thousand times. So I would want other people to be able to experience her incredible creativity with the guitar. For a fleeting moment, maybe in a dream or maybe in some sort of strange drift, you meet the 16-year-old version of yourself, and it is you, and you only have a very short while to talk to them. What do you say? Uh... First of all, I'm going to tell him that he is completely wrong about everything he thinks about romantic relationships. <laughs> that that he should really get his head out of the clouds on that one. Um, uh, I'm I'm going to tell him that he needs to get way way out of his comfort zone. That he needs to live in the city, not in the country, and that. Um, everything's going to get really weird from here on out in a good way and some silly quick fire questions just to finish up sure um, so Simpsons or Futurama Futurama ghosts or zombies ghosts werewolves well, or... I, am, I, don't, am I like fighting them because zombies then <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point actually uh, we <laughs> werewolves or vampires Oh, I, I, am I choosing one to to, to to be or to have? Just uh, in which, the world? which one do you prefer? Oh, which one do I prefer? I guess vampires. Um, angry aliens or friendly aliens? Friendly aliens. Starships or dragons? Starships. And finally, truth or beauty? Beauty. Alex White, thank you very much for appearing on Brave New Words. They were lovely. They were really lovely. 
Okay, so I think we're about to run out of radio show. Aww. So, um, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. See you again, take care.